The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about the big sleep that isn't sleep at all, hibernation. We'll speak with neuroscientist Kelly Drew and biologist Frank Van Brooklyn about what hibernation is and what it might be able to do for us at the bedside and beyond. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a science writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. Getting through the winter can be really hard on some people. It's dark and it's cold and everything kind of sucks. I've had several friends complain that they would hibernate the whole winter away if they could. Hibernation is one of the coolest, get it, coolest, animal adaptations out there. How does it work and what could it do for us? To find out, I'm here with Kelly Drew, a neuroscientist with the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Well, thank you, Bethany. It's a pleasure to have a chance to talk about this. Now, a lot of people probably look at an animal when it's hibernating, and they kind of assume that it's in a deep sleep, but that's actually not really the case. Can you talk about the difference between hibernation and sleep? Sure. Yeah, so hibernation, if you look at the brain waves of a hibernating animal, it looks more like they're in a coma. They have an isoelectric cortical EEG, so their brain waves are flat. So that's very different from sleep that is uh, characterized by very specific um, brainwave patterns. But we do know that animals enter hibernation through sleep, so they, they must be sleeping to drop into the into hibernation and um and you know, and then from there even if when they are in hibernation the EEG is flat but it's very different than a coma because it's all highly coordinated they maintain postural control and um ability to respond to uh to touch and to sound uh but um but it is very different than sleep and hibernation is specifically a, a type of torpor. What does it mean for an animal to go torpid? Well, so torpid, torpor is really just a suppression of metabolism and a subsequent lowering of body temperature. And so we often use them interchangeably. Uh, hibernation is really defined as prolonged torpor. So some animals will... Uh, suppress metabolism and body temperature for less than 24 hours, and that's called daily torpor. But when they uh, get, you know, suppress metabolism, stay cold for more than a day, we call it hibernation. And you study one of the most amazing uh, Arctic uh, hibernators called the Arctic ground squirrel. What is special about them as hibernators? Well, the Arctic ground squirrel is most famous for being able to supercool. So they've uh, it's been demonstrated that they can lower their body temperature as cold as minus three uh, Celsius, so minus three below freezing, and uh, and they come out of that without any damage. So they they're really remarkable at being adapted to the extreme Arctic environment where temperatures are colder than some other areas and so they tolerate very cold temperatures and and so they get colder and they hibernate a little bit longer 
all hibernating animals, if their body temperature drops below 30 C, they go through what's called the spontaneous arousal. And so they'll pop back up at fairly regular intervals. And uh, the Arctic ground squirrel is known to have very long bouts of torpor between these interbout arousals that can last, you know, generally about three weeks, sometimes even longer. Uh, a small animal like a hamster will sometimes just have, you know, five-day torpor bouts, five- to seven-day torpor bouts. So uh, those are the two things that really distinguish them is the how cold they get uh, and the length of their torpor bouts. And when they get cold, they also really turn down their metabolism, right? Yeah, so all hibernating animals, at least the rodents, uh, turn down their metabolism to about the same amount, the same extent. Um, but uh, but they have a different threshold of how cold they can get before it alarms them to wake up. And the Arctic ground squirrel has a very low threshold as far, you know, so they can tolerate very, very cold uh, core body temperatures where a hamster might wake up at um, five degree core body temperature, five degree C, the ground squirrel won't wake up until about minus three C. Now, hibernation goes in stages. Can you give us a ground squirrel's winter? So the winter starts uh, after, after a summer of getting fat and uh, they get into their burrows and um, the first thing that happens actually before they're in their burrows is you'll see a slight gradual decline in their body temperature and we think that this is uh, an indication that they're turning down their metabolism and then once they get into their burrow uh, they get you know curled up in a nest and they're comfortable and they are able to sleep and uh, soon they will drop into this uh, torpid state and Initially, these uh, these little periods of torpor are fairly short, you know, maybe three days, and then they'll wake up and go through this one of these interbout arousals. And as the as the winter progresses, these uh, torpor bouts get a little bit longer until they become quite regular. And so, right around November, December, January, they'll have very long regular torpor bouts. And by the towards the end of February. Um, depends on males and females a little bit, but their torpor bouts will start to shorten a little bit, and eventually they'll they'll warm up all the way, and they'll be done for that season. And you keep talking about these interbout arousals. Most of us probably, when we think of hibernation, I know I did. I thought of an animal just kind of dropping down into hibernation and just kind of staying there like all mm -hmm. winter. Um, but these animals don't do that. What is happening when they're doing these arousals? Well, so first, it, you know, if we think about hibernating bears, bears, they don't get very cold. They don't drop below 30 C. And hibernating bears don't have interbout arousals. And it's the same is true for these fat-tailed lemurs in Madagascar. And so a study on the lemurs found that when they drop below 30 degrees C core body temperature, then they have to do these arousals. Uh, nobody really knows um, exactly why. There are many reasons that uh, that that may be a, a benefit to the animals to pop back up, and they do this. Um, you know, th this is what kind of. Uh, punctuates these bouts of torpor where they will return to normal body temperature for about 24 hours, sometimes 48 hours. 
and then they go back down into torpor. And so there's many theories on uh, on the advantage of these interbout arousals. One of them is that they need to urinate. Um, they uh, another one is that they make glucose. Uh, another one is that they actually do sleep during those those times. So when again, like we talked about, when they're torpid, they're they're they have flat EEGs, the brain waves, no brain waves. Uh, but when they warm back up, they show slow wave sleep. And so some people uh, suggest that they that that sleep debt, sleep deprivation, actually drives uh, these interbout arousals. Some evidence supports that. Some does not. It's still fairly controversial. Um, we uh, uh, they they um, replenish white blood cells. So what happens when they are torpid and, and cold is the uh, they have very very low circulating white cells. So the white cells uh, marginal marginalize against the cell uh, against the vessel walls and they get sequestered into the spleen. So there really is no immune. Uh, function going on while they're torpid. So another thing that happens during interbout arousal is they uh, reinstate their immune system. And so there's a lot of things that uh, probably promote uh, survival um, during these interbout arousals. And uh, exactly which ones are necessary are difficult to uh, define because we don't really know what regulates the inner bout arousal. And that's one thing that we are looking at is, uh, is what is the cue that what's the endogenous natural cue that tells them, Hey, we better wake up for a day before we go back to sleep or back into torpor. And so one of those things is, uh, we think it has to do with metabolism and if they use up their glucose or make too much nitrogen and they have to Reestablish a, a healthy equilibrium with those, um, with the uh, uh, the carbons and the nitrogens. Um, and when they do that, then then they warm up, or they warm up to do that, and then they go back down. And when they that do, answers the question. when they do yeah. warm up, what is what is that like? Do they like what do they go through when they're kind of well, warming up for nothing? Not a lot, not a lot. So they. They warm up. They um, they will sleep, but uh, uh, mostly they they kind of tidy up their nest, fluff up their cotton, um, stay curled tight in a little ball. They don't eat. They may urinate a little bit. Um, they don't typically defecate, and so it it really is consistent. If you were watching them. Looking at their behavior, it really does look like they warm up to sleep because that's what they do during the interbout arousals is they sleep um, and then they and then they go back down. And when they do go back down, it's really impressive how down they go. You mentioned that their immune system, um, their immune cells kind of go and end up sticking up in the spleen, but they also they have almost no blood flow, right? Yeah, it's, it's a really very low blood flow. I mean, they go from a, a heart rate around 200 beats per minute when they're awake and active um, down to three to six beats per minute when they are in deep torpor. Uh, so that, that, you know, respiratory rate um, uh, also goes down to about, um, you know, gosh, I mean, sometimes we've... I've held a, a hibernating squirrel in my hand and not seen him breathe for over a minute. So uh, it, it's really hard to imagine unless you've actually seen it. 
um, I mean, there are lots of stories of uh, even veterinarians not being able to determine if a hibernating squirrel is dead or alive. So what is it like to hold one? It's quite fun. It's like it's what got me hooked on studying hibernation as the first time uh, somebody put a hibernating ha- squirrel in my hands. I said, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. I had to figure it out. But um, they, they are. I mean, they're they're furry. They're cute. Uh, but they're cold. And um, they're very gentle. So they're wild animals, but you can you can hold them and cuddle them and they uh they don't uh, they don't bite, and it's interesting because um, when they are very cold, they're a little bit stiff. But you can also they will also hibernate at warmer temperatures. I mean, at, at normal room temperature, they'll hibernate, and those are really fun because those they they look a little bit more like they're anesthetized. They're just kind of um, they're groggy. I mean, if they're if they're in kind of deep t- torpor at that temperature, you pick them up and they'll kind of like you know fall to one side and. <laughs> but they're just they're just very mellow. But certainly the colder they are, the stiffer and tightly more tightly they're curled. And so temperature plays a big role in what they look like when they're hibernating. But for the most part they're just very, very mellow. So you start with this little squirrel sickle, which is what I'm going to call mm-hmm. it. And when they come back up to body temperature, how how do they do that? How do they go from negative three to thirty seven? Well, they work really hard at it. If you look at their uh, metabolic rate, and you know they're measured by oxygen consumption, it, it looks like they're uh, you know sprinting for several hours, and they um, but they it, it is initiated by uh, Starting thermogenesis, so they they have brown fat, brown adipose tissue that humans also have, but we don't have so much of it. Rodents have a lot, and hibernating species have a ton of it. I mean, their hearts um, and their necks are their uh, the rib cage is just encased with this brown adipose tissue, which is really a heater. So it's um. It's brown because it has so many mitochondria, and the mitochondria have these um, proteins called uncoupling proteins. And uh, so what happens is that uh, they um, they generate heat. So uh, rather than making ATP, the proton thro- flows through these, uh, these uh, pro- uncoupling proteins, and uh, it's kind of like water flowing over a waterfall. It's all that um, energy that is just generated into heat, and so they warm up in that way. So they they start, you know, warming up in, around the heart, um, and and that quickly shunts blood to the head. So they warm up their brain. Uh, so in, in as well as you know, kind of generating heat in that area, they also. Uh, constrict the blood vessels down in the lower extremities. And so they do uh, physically push the blood up to the brain. And so they warm up the front of the body first. And in fact, the rear end of the body doesn't come to full temperature um, and full metabolism for even two days later. So they they really focus on the vital organs, the heart and the brain, and uh, get those things warmed up first. And Slowly and eventually, they they start using their legs and uh, 
you know, which may be one reason why they don't run around and play during their inner bout arousal is, <laughs> is that their rear end doesn't, it's not all that functional for, you know, for several hours. I was especially interested in your studies on adenosine receptors. Can you talk a little bit about what those are and what they do? Yeah, um, adenosine is most famous for being an endogenous sleep drive. So it was first shown in cats, and you know, people who have cats know that they nap a lot. So uh, they found that uh, when cats were deprived of their naps, adenosine in the brain would accumulate, and when the cat was allowed to have its nap, then the adenosine would um, go down again. And uh, it was uh, through a number of different approaches and different um, uh, species, it's um, it's shown that uh, adenosine is the endogenous sleep drive. It's not all over the brain, but in some key parts of the brain, um, like the basal forebrain, it accumulates, and that's what causes us to fall asleep. And then as we sleep, it dissipates, and we are able to wake up. So people are familiar with adenosine if they drink any caffeinated beverages because the reason that caffeine wakes us up is that it um, inhibits adenosine receptors. And so we were interested in adenosine because we knew that uh, animals had to sleep to hibernate. And uh, it was actually a Japanese group that first showed it in hamsters that if they... Uh, injected a, a drug that stimulated adenosine receptors uh, into the brain, they could cause a hibernation-like state and that they, if they gave a drug like caffeine into the brain, it would um, reverse a hibernating state. And so we tried it also in the Arctic ground squirrel and got similar results. Uh, but we also found that the adenosine drug the uh, the adenosine agonist that stimulated the adenosine receptors that it um, would only work in the summer or sorry it would only work in the winter and not in the summer and so we have looked then at uh, how adenosine in the brain um, modulates hibernation and what the the mechanism might be that changes the response between summer and winter. And you also study the periods of arousal. Can you tell me what happens to a ground squirrel's brain as it hibernates and what you're looking for in terms of when it goes through arousal periods? Well, we know that um, there are there's some other another class of drugs that will cause the animals to come up out of hibernation. So, you know, this these phases of the hibernation cycle. Uh, you know, I've talked about the about torpor and then these inner bout arousals. Well, if you look at a single torpor bout, we call it. It's got three phases. One of them is the entrance as they cool down. One of them is the maintenance phase, and one of them is the arousal phase. And so we are uh, pretty sure that adenosine plays an important role to drive them down, to cause them to go down into torpor. And and now we've been looking at uh, what will cause them to come back up. And actually, the coffee question is really interesting because the the coffee-like drugs will only cause them to uh, wake up early in their torpor bout. Late in the torpor bout, it doesn't work. Um, And so there's something else going on that induces this inner bout arousal. And while lots of people 
have suggested uh, the uh, benefit of these little inner bout arousals. Nobody's identified the cue in the brain or the body that um, causes them to do this. And so we have, so there was this drug, these drugs that were found to induce arousal that work by blocking these glutamate receptors. So glutamate is another neurotransmitter uh, and uh, it has certain receptors. And if you block those receptors, it will induce arousal even late in the torpor bout. And so it happens that glutamate is a derivative of glucose. It's made from glucose. And so if you don't have a lot of glucose, you don't have a lot of glutamate. And it also is kind of a sponge for nitrogen. So when the animals are not eating, just like a person who's not eating, they break down protein uh, for the the um, carbons in the protein, and um, they generate a lot of free nitrogen. And that can build up and cause... Uh, toxicity and um, and so but what glutamate does is it acts like a little sponge for nitrogen and it turns into another molecule called glutamine and so we thought that the we still think and we're testing this that the absence of glucose during these long torpor bouts and the accumulation of nitrogen might be influencing the glutamate levels and in that way it's um, it's the crosstalk between our nutrients and metabolism and the neurotransmitters that our brain uses to communicate with, and so we're studying the role of that those pathways um, as potential cues that in the way that our that the um, kind of nutrient availability influences cellular communication in the brain and how that might um, be the cue to wake them up. But actually what we found is it's not working in the brain, it's working outside of the brain, and so, but it's still working through glutamate. And so now we're looking at, uh, at possible sources of where glutamate could be communicating outside of the brain and uh, still have a lot, a lot yet to learn about that. And you've mentioned that people cool patients after cardiac arrest and it's being investigated for stroke. What is protective about being cold? Well, it's uh, what I, I like to think of it as a combination therapy because there's multiple things that are protective. It um, reduces inflammation. So inflammation is a big part of the injury uh, to, after stroke. And um, it uh, reduces the uh generation of free radicals, reactive oxygen species that are um, kind of like little bullets that get let loose when tissue is injured uh, that causes the tissue injury to progress and get worse, a lot like inflammation. Uh, actually, the free radicals can stimulate inflammatory responses. Uh, it also cold um, will attenuate many of the other cellular events that lead to uh, cell death. One of them in the brain is the release of glutamate. Glutamate is what's called an excitatory neurotransmitter, and too much of it becomes an excitotoxin. And when the tissue is cold, the glutamate is not released, even during a stroke-like event. And so just about everything you look at in the web of events that leads to this progressive cell death after a stroke or a cardiac arrest is attenuated when the tissue is cold. And so it's really very effective at protecting uh, metabolically vulnerable tissue after their um, the you know energy supply is uh, is limited. So I mean that's why the brain and the heart is so vulnerable is because it's they're so energy demanding and the brain most of all is energy demanding. And so when you take the blood flow away, it can't get its oxygen and nutrients. And so that causes the cells to be unstable and, uh, and pretty soon, um, they're falling apart and, uh, 
and all this web of these this web this cascade of events happens and it's a progressive injury and so if you can cool it at the very least it lowers their metabolic demand because things are moving more slowly but i think even more importantly it, it um it just uh it, it attenuates these specific processes that lead to lead to the cell death now you mentioned that when uh, ground squirrels, for example, get cool. They their um, cellular processes in their brains, so you know their their synapses, their dendrites retract. What does mm-hmm. that mean for the squirrel's behavior? Like, does it forget things? Like, how how does it how how does it impact the way a squirrel functions? Well, it's a good question, and one of the questions that come up when we talk about putting people into long-term hibernation for space travel is uh, how much brain function are they going to lose in this process? And are they going to be able to remember how to do what they know how to do to run their spaceship, you know, uh, when they wake up? And uh, all we know is in hibernating species that hibernate over the winter, they lose some memory of that they knew ahead of time um, before they hibernated and they retain others. Uh, they, they retain the ability to recognize their buddies um, but, uh, and, and then we also know that in the Arctic ground squirrel, they actually learn better. If you're going to learn new information, they learn better after they've come up out of hibernation. So there is this re-sprouting of synapses that, uh, that seems to be related to a, a peak, uh, ability to acquire new information. So it's, those are things that are, have yet to be fully, um, understood and, and, uh, described and it very likely relates to how cold they get. So again, we're looking at hibernating animals that get near freezing temperatures when they hibernate. And with uh, with humans, we're talking about a much less uh, decrease in body temperature. So it's yet to be determined. We are just starting to do this stuff in rodent experiments with with you know laboratory rats and looking at what just 24 hours of cooling will do to their ability to remember and acquire new new information. But it is a good question. Now, Kelly, you are a consultant for a group called SpaceWorks Enterprises. What is it and what are you doing for them? Well, SpaceWorks is a a privately owned company that is, its mission is to solve the problems for getting people to Mars or on space travel. And so it's uh, largely engineers, um, but they also have a a, a component that is uh, focused on uh, human stasis and um, how to uh, protect the human astronaut during space travel. And so they have a vision of long-term human hibernation for space travel. And uh, and so I'm part of a small group that is discussing the uh, possible application of hibernation for space travel and imagining, you know, the problems and the solutions to these problems. And why would hibernation be necessary or useful in space? Well, I mean, one of the the two things, one is, uh, you know, how much food you have to carry. So just overall payload. Um, another advantage of being able to hibernate is just avoiding the the cabin fever effects of being in a small spacecraft for one to two years. 
Uh, a bigger problem, really, that NASA has identified is protection from ionizing radiation. And, uh, and so it is suggested and, and, and hypothesized that cooling will protect from these things and uh, something else that we're just starting to investigate. That was something I found very entertaining when I talked to a bunch of people about hibernation in space, and their response was, well, otherwise, we just drive each other nuts. Exactly. Can you imagine? Oh, my goodness. Right. So it'd be wonderful to be able to just hibernate the time away. It's just like a ground squirrel in winter, and they wake up, and and uh, and they're there. And what would be required for a person to achieve torpor or hibernate in space? Well, that's, you know, some of the stuff that we're talking about that's really interesting because there's uh, um, a few physicians on the on the in the group and uh, some of these uh, physicians cool people for uh, biomedical purposes. And so they're familiar with with the challenges of cooling people. And um, their perspective is very different than my perspective, where I see the hibernating animal that does it without any problem. And so some of the questions are, well, uh, what do you do with the, the waste? First, how do you feed the person while they're cold? And secondly, what do you do with the waste that they generate? And it's so interesting because a hibernating animal, even a bear that doesn't get all that cold, doesn't eat for the whole hibernation season, and they don't defecate. Uh, but um, as far as we know, with humans, when they're cold, they still do need some nutrient and they still do need some way to remove waste. And so those are those are some of the challenges is how to feed them. Uh, do you put an IV line in them and continually feed them glucose? Do you uh, uh, just try to empty food directly into the stomach? And again, from looking at hibernation, we know that the animals don't use glucose. They don't use sugar. They don't use carbs. You know, when they're hibernating, they use uh, protein and uh, fat, primarily fat, and what are called ketone bodies. And um, and so those are some of the questions that have come up. And we can make some animals hibernate right now, right? Right. Well, you know, I mean, we can induce a hibernation-like state with the with these uh, drugs that stimulate the adenosine receptor. Uh, we I mean, probably haven't been enough done to to say if that is exactly hibernation. We have not looked to see if we induce it that way. Uh, if they can go about their business, their hibernation bout without uh, any uh, problems. So we know we have induced it, and then we wake them up uh, artificially and um, let them go back down on their own. So it, we we think that we've induced it. Uh, there's a lot of fine tuning yet to do to see if it really is completely uh, true to hibernation. And right now, we only cool people for you know a day or two, right? We don't do it for very long periods of time. Right, and that is actually one of the questions in medicine is uh, how long is it feasible to cool and does the prolonged cooling uh, improve the benefit? And uh, it seems as though the more severe the injury, the deeper and longer the cooling, um, the better. But it also seems that if people are cooled longer and, you know, three days or longer, that there's more complications during rewarming. So that's a, a little bit that we know. 
And we but also certainly don't nothing. Know. Yeah, it's it's nothing like you know cooling for three weeks, like in the ground squirrels, you know, or for total of eight months, like in a bear. Right, and of course we don't know what we might lose, what abilities or functions or memories we might lose if we right for a long exactly time. for a long time. Yep. So that's one of the questions. And a lot of recent movies and not so recent movies really seem to enjoy the idea of hibernations in space and they kind of run with it. Uh, what kind of movies have you seen that kind of deal with hibernation and have any of them done it really well or have any of them done it especially badly? Well, I have to say I work too much to really watch a lot of movies, but um, the, I have heard good things about Passengers. That's a new movie. Um that it's a pretty accurate portrayal of what people envision for what for human hibernation. But I mean, to tell the truth, even you know, working with the folks at SpaceWorks, uh, I'm not sure that their vision is the same as my vision. And uh, and so there's still yet a lot to be determined. But but one of the things that is consistent is in an isolated capsule because if if people are cold, their immune their immune uh, response is suppressed. Uh, and so you need, they need to be isolated. Um, and, uh, you know, they will certainly be immobilized. Uh, and, mm, you know, so the, the, even, you know, how they portray it in, uh, in Alien, uh, where I think it was Sigourney Weaver was, uh, in the pod, you know, and the group of them were in there and then they woke up. I mean, that's pretty consistent to what we can imagine. But what is the big limit for us right now on whether or not humans could hibernate? What is kind of stopping us from being able to do it? Well, um, you know, one of them is uh, for very long, it's what to do, how to feed, you know, what, what we need for nutrients and what we do with the wastes and how to keep the gut moving if it does need to move. Uh, what um, happens to the heart during rewarming. So cardiac arrhythmias during rewarming is probably the biggest risk of cooling. And um, they can have, you know, problems with the how the blood clots and, uh, you know, without an injured, without a pre-existing injury, that's probably not a big problem. But, um, I, you know, I would like to see the study of human cooling to be done on healthy volunteers before we apply it to uh, clinical scenarios, because I think that's what we really need to work out is how to comfortably cool somebody and how for how long without, you know, side effects. But, uh, and, you know, that's another, we have no idea what it's going to do to cognition and, you know, the ability to remember and to learn new things really until we test it. And what about bone and muscle atrophy? I know astronauts suffer a lot of bone and muscle atrophy in space. Yeah, so that's another good point. Uh, and that's just space travel, period, because uh, of anti-gravity. And, uh, and that's another thing about hibernation is that they have um, genes that uh, stay turned on during their inactivity that uh, maintain bone and muscle mass. That um, humans, if they are in on bed rest, those genes, gene expression, that gene expression turns down, and so they actually have atrophy. 
And uh, so how to maintain that during long-term space travel is another question that maybe is unrelated to cooling per se, but if we really understood the whole suite of, of uh, you know, things that regulate hibernation, we might be able to turn those same things on as well and maintain bone and muscle mass. But as far as we know, that's still very different than what we're looking at with regard to uh, the adenosine drug-induced cooling. What do you think for the sake of human health is going to be kind of the most important thing that we need to learn? I think how to be cold and comfortable. So we really want people to just be comfortable while their body temperature is lowered. And I think if we can make them comfortable, we'll see huge benefits of cooling in many applications. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. We've linked to Kelly Drew's work and more of her information at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, we'll be speaking with Frank Van Brooklyn about his hibernation work using a mammal about as far away from a ground squirrel as you can get. Get ready to meet the Tenrec. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. We've talked about Arctic ground squirrels and how hibernation might be able to help us. But there's no one way to hibernate, and it's time for us to meet the Tenrec. I'm here with Frank Van Brooklyn, a physiologist at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, to talk about the Tenrec, what it is, and what it can tell us about the origins of hibernation. Thank you so much for being here, Frank. Thank you. Now let's get started with something simple yet complex. What is a Tenrec? So that's a good question. Tenrecs are a group of mammals, but there's very little known about them. There's about 35 species in Madagascar. That's going to change in the next couple of years by a few species. All but uh, three of the species live in Madagascar. The other three live in mainland Africa. And they came to Africa, to uh, Madagascar, somewhere around 50 million years ago and then radiated out into all kinds of different sorts and forms. And so they're a really fascinating group and there's a lot of similarities between Tenrex and what we think our ancestral uh, mammal might have looked like, placental mammal. And you said 35 species and soon to be a different number. Why hasn't anyone really studied these guys before? So in Madagascar, we got lemurs. And if you're going to go to Madagascar to work on an animal, what would you work on? A lemur or a tenrec? And so I think the tenrecs were sort of ignored a little bit by the scientific community because of this incredible uh, uh, lemur radiation that people saw. Um, that's not to say that there wasn't work being done. There's always been work being done. But uh, Madagascar is a difficult place to work in, and there just isn't enough work. And... You talked a little bit about how they got ignored. Are they are they uninspiring? What are they like? 
they're really cute. And so um, the thing about them is that there's all kinds of different species. So we have species that look like rats and some that look like mice, some that look like otters, some that look like shrews, some that look just like hedgehogs. And there's species that are arboreal living in trees, fossorial living on the ground. There's even a species that's aquatic and it spends its entire night um, uh, in stream beds uh, eating insects and uh, aquatic invertebrates. And then it disappears during the day and nobody really knows what's going on. But um, in terms of their study, you know, uh, you had this incredibly charismatic group of lemurs. And these guys weren't quite as charismatic. And so if you're going to go to Madagascar, I think people were going after the lemurs. Well, and they also, they, they breed weird, don't they? These guys are incredible in terms of their breeding. And so what you have is, um, in the case of the species that I work in with in the lab, Tenrechi caudatus, or the common Tenrec, they have uh, as many as 32 babies for sure. And there's a report from the 1920s that said 35 babies. And the average litter size is somewhat variable in Madagascar. They're found all throughout the island. And so the average litter size is somewhere between, like, say, 16 and 20, depending on where they're from. Wow. And I heard that they actually have a really weird number of nipples to go along with that. They do. They have their nipples are are pushed off to their side a little bit more than most other mammals. And um, apparently the number is 29 that people find. Of course, it varies from animal to animal. That's a little unfair to the potentially 32 to 35 babies. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look like they're like pigs. Like if you look at a pig, uh, a pig will choose a nipple and, and stick to that nipple throughout its development. Uh, these guys don't seem to really care. They go for whatever nipple's available. And you have a colony of Tenrex in your lab, but you also have one in your house. Yes. What kinds do you have? <laughs> so in the lab, we have Tenrechi cardatus. And in fact, these are the only ones that are in North America, the ones that we brought in. Um, and uh, these are just have this spectacular hibernation associated with them, which is why we're working on them. Uh, I got kind of smitten by the, uh, the Tenrex, and so I had an opportunity to get some um, Echinops telferi, or the lesser hedgehog Tenrex. And uh, so I have those at home. They're cute. <laughs> do they really look like hedgehogs? They do. Uh, it's incredible. So there's two species that look like hedgehogs, the Echinops telferiae, and then another one, Cetophytosis, or the greater um, uh, hedgehog tenrec. And they look exactly like tenrex. And you're interested in tenrex specifically because you're interested in hibernation. Can you talk to me about how Tenrex hibernate? So Tenrex hibernate, or at least there, hibernation has been studied in at least four species of Tenrex with some, you know, differences in terms of how well it's been studied. And what we know is in the um, spiny Tenrex, there is large differences in how they hibernate. So if you were to look at Echinops telferii, or the guys that I have at home, what they do is they hibernate during um, our winter, um, and they'll uh, uh, be torpid for most of the day, and then sometimes in the early evening, uh, they'll warm up. In the wild, they'll actually uh, come out and bask in the sun a little bit, uh, warm up, and then they'll forage a little, uh, which is kind of bizarre for hibernators. They don't normally eat during the hibernation period. 
Cetaphrosatosis, um, or the greater hedgehog tenrac, is probably more akin to what Kelly Drew was talking about with the ground squirrel hibernation. They seem to go torpid, remain torpid for several days, then come up for a day, and then go torpid again for uh, various bouts of, of hibernation during the uh, hibernation season. In the case of our common Tenrex, it's a completely different story. These guys, uh, during um, our summer or the austral winter, because they have not shifted um, uh, despite coming up into the northern hemisphere, so they're still in the southern hemisphere schedule, um, they'll go uh, and start hibernating. And they can hibernate at various times of the year. We even have one animal that just recently went into hibernation already for the season, and we had births two days ago. So kind of crazy. Um, but during our summer, they'll hibernate and they'll be consistently uh, torpid. So it's not like a ground squirrel where a ground squirrel will do this inner bout arousal and then you can't really tell the difference between a, um, a ground squirrel and inner bout arousal versus a summer active ground squirrel. Um, they're both very fast. They're both very uh, um, active. Um, in the case of the Tenrex, they're always lethargic. They're just more or less lethargic during the hibernation season. So it's a very different story. So they kind of do a seasonal laziness that is accompanied by hibernation as opposed to straight hibernation? In the wild, what they would do is um, they would uh, dig a hole and people say they can go down as much as a meter deep. And then they bury themselves and literally take a dirt nap for uh, eight or nine months, we think. Um, there hasn't been enough field work really done to really say that well. Um, and uh, just recently, looking at YouTube, uh, I discovered that they uh, uh, communally hibernate. Um, no one seemed to have known that. Uh, but there was a video that somebody posted showing them uh, collecting uh, tenracks for food in the middle of uh, the hibernation season. And they pulled out 13 tenracks out of one hibernaculum. And so, um, so in the wild, they're probably doing something a little bit different than they are in the lab because I don't think they'd ever get disturbed in the wild. Uh, in our guys, we definitely can disturb them just by going into the room a little bit. And um, But again, it's not the same thing as a ground squirrel. And a ground squirrel, if I were to disturb one, they would come up out of hibernation and warm up to um, a very warm body temperature, uh, about 36 degrees C. And then they would uh, uh, be capable of running and, and um, uh, doing all kinds of other stuff. In the Tenrex, when we arouse them or mess around with them a little bit or keep them at pretty warm temperatures, sometimes we hibernate them at 28 degrees C. When we do that, what they do instead is that they will um, become less lethargic, but they're still somewhat lethargic. So they'll, they'll, um, uh, they'll be ataxic. They'll be uh, sort of wobbly. And so have uh, uh, I've seen them drink while they're in the middle of hibernation and they just kind of like walk up kind of stumbling and, and sort of lap up, but not very well. And we've seen them uh, go back into torpor in the middle of a food dish and stuff. <laughs> in the middle of a food dish. Exactly. They they do a face plant. So. <laughs> for for days, they just like go torpid just in the middle of the food dish. Yeah, yeah, they can do that. And so, but sometimes they move around a little bit at night, which I don't think they really do in the wild uh, underneath the ground. But people really don't know. Now, these animals, you've described them as pretty wildly diverse, but you've also mentioned that they're kind of 
I don't want to say primitive, but evolutionarily basal? Yeah, they, so back in 2013, Maureen O'Leary's group published a paper, and it was a great paper in science that really sort of, of um, postulated what our common mammalian ancestor would have been on the placental side. And they attributed all sorts of features to them. You know, for instance, they said that their brains would have the folds, the gyri that we see, and, they, and, and various other features. And if we look at our tenrex, what we find is that they have features that are even more ancestral than this quote-unquote hypothetical placental uh, mammalian ancestor and features that are actually even more um, ancestral-like than, say, the marsupials or the pouched mammals. And um, so, for instance, the tenrex that I have in the lab have a really, really small brain. They have a brain uh, for their size that's actually smaller than that of all the monotremes or, or egg-laying uh, uh, mammals, as well as the marsupials, and their brain is smooth. And um, they have some very, very small regions of the, of the brain that we always thought were, were incredibly important. Um, the tenrex also have a cloaca which is a common urogenital opening. And so all tubes end up in the one uh, uh, location. And we see that in the uh, monotremes, but not in the marsupials. And we also see that in things like uh, birds and reptiles and amphibians and fishes. So why does this make them important? I think they're really important because when you talk to Kelly, Kelly was talking about ground squirrels. And I view ground squirrels as probably the best hibernator there ever was, right? Uh, core temperatures that can be as low as minus 2.9 degrees C. Pretty amazing. And they have this really, really profound hibernation. Their oxygen consumption is, is incredibly low. And they're, and, um, and they're really good at hibernating. I liken them to, say, the Usain Bolt of the hibernation community. And I would say that our Tenrex, particularly the ones in the lab, are more like the Homer Simpson of the, tenor, of the hibernation community. They're not very good at it. And so if we could compare a ground squirrel versus a Tenrex, we might be able to say, okay, well, these are the things that are important in order to be able to hibernate. And this is what makes you a great hibernator or not a great hibernator. Um, there's a there's a little bit of a misnomer in terms of hibernation. A lot of people think that hibernation is this really cute adaptation, right? An animal goes in in the in the fall and goes to sleep and then comes back up in the spring. But it turns out that um, there's a tremendous amount of mortality associated with hibernation. So in ground squirrels, in some populations, you might see 20 to 50 percent of adult ground squirrels and as much as 70 percent of juvenile ground squirrels die in a given winter. And so hibernation is pretty tough on animals. Yet, I think what we're looking at when we look at a ground squirrel is probably the best hibernator, and that's come out from years and years of evolution. For whatever reason, I think our Tenrex just never really evolved to be great hibernators, and that might have something to do with the climate that they're living in and, and the environment that they're in. But nevertheless, they're just not very good hibernators. And comparing those two, I think we're going to actually try to tease out some of the mechanisms of hibernation. And why exactly do Tenrex hibernate? When you think about ground squirrels, for example, you know, if you're an Arctic ground squirrel, winter is really, really harsh. 
if you're living in Madagascar, life is kind of like relatively sweet, right? Why do they hibernate? Well, first off, hi, um, Madagascar is not all that sweet. It depends on where you're at in Madagascar. So Madagascar is referred to as a hyper-variable environment. So we're trying to go and do some work in Madagascar right now where it snows. You know, not what you think of when you think about Madagascar. And the southern part of Madagascar can be very dry. But um, uh, the species that we work with is actually found all throughout Madagascar. And in the north, it's either really, really hot and wet or it's hotter and wetter. Um, either way, there's tons of food available throughout the entire year. And yet these guys are hibernating. And so it really sort of challenges what the purpose of hibernation was. Uh, we think that uh, animals uh, evolved to hibernate in the tropics. And yet now we think about them in terms of, of that northern hemisphere bias. And we're thinking about a ground squirrel and, and the problems of winter with low food availability and lots of cold. But that's probably not what they evolved to hibernate in to, to start off with. And so it's a really great question. And nobody really knows knows what the answer is, but there's a good idea about, well, why be out there if you don't need to be out there? If what you can do is um, bury yourself underneath the ground, you probably um, have less risk of predation or fire or various other sort of stresses. And so you just kind of hide out until that next season you reproduce, eat a little bit in order to um, uh, build up some stores and then go back down again. And you study these guys both in Madagascar and also in your lab. What are you looking for and how do you do it? So, well, we started thinking that we we're going to look for something different than what we're looking for. And, and I was recently funded by uh, National Science Foundation in order to do some projects. And, and some of those are that we're going to look at the energetics of these 10 racks. We're going to try to figure out, well, how much energy are they using and get at some of the physiological um, sort of mechanisms that they use. So we're going to look at things like heart rate and uh, um, tissue oxygen levels and uh, uh, blood pressure in the context of how much oxygen consumption they're doing. But what I'm really interested in is I'm interested in, well, what are the costs of normal metabolism? So why are we using uh, um, uh, energy? And how does a hibernator then not use energy? And so like much of my earlier work in ground squirrels re revolved around the idea that they would turn off their protein metabolism. They would stop making proteins and stop degrading proteins. And I was interested in the mechanisms of that. I th we're going to do the same thing in the Tenrex, but I think I'm going to find something very different. I'm not sure that they're actually going to turn off um, protein metabolism so much. I think they're just so variable that they can handle the, the stresses of not having good protein metabolism, which is a really weird idea for me. Um, in terms of some other work, we're going to look at kidney function. So uh, during uh, uh, normal activities, some 18% of blood flow might go to the kidney. And obviously, that's not going to happen when you're hibernating. So how is it that they're able to maintain kidney function? And what is it that they do? Or do they maintain kidney function? We really don't know. Now, when you talk about the way these animals kind of regulate their metabolism or don't, as, as Tenrex <laughs> yeah. might not, you know, that makes me think of the way ectotherms, so cold-blooded animals, 
kind of don't handle their own temperature, right? They just kind of like ride local outside temperature cycles. So are Tenrex mammalian ectotherms sometimes? Yeah, actually, you know, it's so weird, but but it's not very far off from reality. Um, We're seeing so many things that make us see an ectotherm-like behavior. So if I keep my Tenrex at 12 degrees C, their core body temperatures can be anywhere from 13 to 32 degrees C. And even at 13 degrees C, they can run, they can swim, which is really bizarre. That doesn't make sense in, in the context of, of, uh, of mammals. We don't think of mammals as doing that. We think of mammals as requiring a warm body temperature in order to really be able to um, be mammalian-like. And these guys... They, yeah, I don't think they read the book. And so they're a little confusing for us in terms of what they're doing. And much of what they're doing is actually very uh, um, sort of ectothermic-like. For instance, when we were measuring oxygen consumption um, at the cooler temperatures of like 12 and, and 14, 16 degrees C, um, these guys will oftentimes go for periods of like 45 minutes with no breaths. They'll just hold their breath for 45 minutes. And then there's no compensatory um, uh, ventilation. They're just not ventilating for 45 minutes. And they do stuff that looks very insect-like in terms of the way that they're breathing. They're, that um, Insects open up their spiracles and then allow for passive um, uh, gas exchange. These guys are doing something quite similar to that, and it's got us really confused. And a lot of scientists study hibernation and animals that go into torpor because we kind of want to learn how to make humans do it, right? We want to learn how to get to space or survive brain injury. What do you think Tenrex can teach us about human hibernation? So I think one of the problems was that when we were looking at hibernation, we were looking at the very best hibernator and saying, I want to be like the best hibernator. But we're not the best hibernator, right? Uh, We don't hibernate or, you know. Not really. And so if we're not going to hibernate, maybe we should look at a really lousy hibernator, uh, something that is just kind of uh, of just sort of barely making it in the uh, in the realm of hibernation and say, okay, well, what is it that they're doing? And maybe we can find out and sort of get the the, you know, uh, the bare minimum of what you need in order to be a hibernator. So if a ground squirrel has a constellation of a of hundred different things that makes it a great hibernator, maybe a Tenrec has 10 different things. And maybe we can look at those 10 different things and say, oh, okay, so this is what we really need to do in order to be a good hibernator or an acceptable hibernator. Frank, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you. We have linked to Dr. Van Brooklyn's website and information about his work at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. You can also find our Patreon page there. And if the mood strikes, please consider supporting our intrepid podcasting crew with a monthly donation to help keep the lights on. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. 
Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.